Take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 8. I'll give you a second to get there. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. This is God's word for you today. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go, say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Lord, would you please give illumination as we seek to understand your word and grow in light of it. For Christ's sake, amen. Perhaps you can relate to the experience. Some of you, it might have been in college or graduate school or something where you you sat down the first day of class, and the professor uh, you know, walks in, and uh, the lady or gentleman begins to explain what the class is, and you go through the syllabus, and as you begin to look at the requirements in the syllabus, you're like, I'm sorry, you said what now? I'm expected to do what? How much time do I have to do it? And maybe for others, it's perhaps not in, in a college experience, or maybe it was when you had a job change. Maybe they... Uh, they downsized in the company and they laid off your colleague and so you sit down with your boss and they go to tell you that your workload has doubled but your pay has not. And you have that kind of, wait, I'm sorry, what? You, you, you expect me to do what now? How on earth am I supposed to perform that? And I suspect, though, in a far more reverent way is a little bit of a glimpse into what we're seeing here at the end of Isaiah chapter 6. We've just left, this is really the beginning of the book, the first five chapters are uh, the, the preface in a, in a way, it gives us a summary of what the entire book goes to cover. At the beginning of chapter 6, we have one of the greatest and most beautiful portraits of the glory of God anywhere in the Old Testament. Isaiah is taken in this vision into the very throne room of God where he observes the glory of the Lord, and and the glory of the Lord is so great that his human mind and his human language is not able to capture it. And so he gives us little snippets of what that glory is like. 
It's filled with beauty. It have these burning seraphim, these burning angels, creatures of fire in some fashion, singing back and forth to each other the praises of God uh, so robustly and so richly that it even shakes the temple. The temple's filled with the smoke of God's glory, the cloud of God's glory, obscuring who God is from Isaiah's very presence. But the glory itself was profound and overwhelming. So much so that you have Isaiah's response, which is in essence to say, I'm a goner. I know my heart. I know my mouth. I know my hands. I know my, I know my people. And I'm in the one place that I can't be because I am a sinner who is in the presence of a holy God. That, however, and happily is not the end of Isaiah. It should have been, perhaps, but it's not. For the Lord instead sends one of the angels to cleanse him with a, a, a burning coal from the altar to basically kind of this representative cleansing process of having his sins removed. And you have this verse 7, beautiful ending to the glory of the Lord. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. You, Isaiah, are a clean man, now no longer standing in a place you should never be. You now stand in the place that you belong, in the presence of the glory of God. That is, wonderfully, not where the story stops. And I broke up the passage and unintentionally made for a second sermon that's a bit more difficult than the first. Because out of that glory in the midst of God's throne room, a conversation begins. A conversation between the all-holy God and a conversation with the now-holy Isaiah. And it begins with the Lord asking, in some sense, a rhetorical question. Really, because every question the Lord asks is a rhetorical question. We ask questions to gain information. He never needs to do that, for he has all information. In fact, he's outside of time, watching all of it simultaneously, controlling it, ordaining it all at this exact same time. Uh, So it's not really a question in which he needs to get new information. The voice of the Lord echoing out of the cloud of glory, echoing into the throne room of God, echoing through the temple of God with the fiery angels around and the cloud obscuring His brilliance. Who will I send? Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Who will be my messenger? Who will be my representative? And for us, I guess, I mean, kind of sitting where we are thousands of years removed and not living in this exact moment, his answer seems almost kind of common sense. I've actually heard this passage preached where Isaiah gives the only common sense answer that could be given, and I, I suspect that's actually kind of maybe the wrong way to think about it. I mean, remember, what is Isaiah looking at while this is taking place? Right? The burning angels of God. These creatures, you know, composed in some sense in a way to reflect the very glory of the throne room in which they reside. You have the Almighty God obscured by the the cloud of His glory. It's really kind of one of those moments where it's like one of these is not like the others. One of these kind of doesn't really belong. 
I mean, if you're going to be honest and kind of assessing this, if, if you're going to have this question answered, who will God send to go accomplish His purposes? Literally everybody in the room has done no sin except for one guy. I mean, you would think the most common sense answer would be to draw lots between one of the angels, right? These guys have been in God's presence. They've been singing His glory back and forth. They've been perfectly equipped to accomplish His tasks. They are creatures of wonder and power and brilliance and beauty. Maybe one of those guys. I mean, they've never done anything wrong. Maybe one of those guys. And honestly, if we were going to assess it based on gifting or based on ability, who would we have chosen? God Himself. And if not Him, if He's going to have to send somebody, one of the angels. In fact, actually, if we're going to base it on competency, who's the last guy we're going to consider? Isaiah. In fact, actually, I think this is probably the first idea that we need to contemplate as we go to think about interacting with the Lord and think about this text, is that Christian service flows from a relationship with God, not the gifting by God. Christian service flows from our proximity to God, our, our closeness to Christ. Ultimately, weirdly enough, not even the gifting that Christ himself gives. Realistically, if we were going to think through this question and be kind of candid and honest with the answer, whom should God send? Whom should the Lord send out to accomplish his purposes? It would be those creatures that he has specifically designed to be his messengers. In fact, actually, he's dubbed them that, which is what the word angel means. They're messengers. That's what they were made to do. If we were talking competency or gifting or, or successfulness, we probably would have picked one of them. But interestingly, that's not what God chooses. That's not what God bases his choice upon. Instead, interestingly, choosing his man for his reasons to go accomplish his purposes I find this intriguing, too, because it, and the way it impacts kind of church ministry as a whole. And it's one of the most kind of common answers that are given when you go to have a conversation with somebody about serving in the church. Well, they'll say something like, well, you know, I just, I just don't have those gifts. I, I'm just, I just, I don't know what I'm good at. I, I don't, I'm just not skilled enough. I can't teach Sunday school. Have, I mean, do you listen to me talk? I can't teach kids. I don't know how to and it's intriguing, again, I think so much of this is because we've lived in the greatest meritocracy in human history. I say this often, we do live in this unbelievable meritocracy where if you are willing to work hard and you have gifts, you can always succeed. And we unfortunately then bring that into the church where we say, my value as a Christian, my value in Christian service, my value added to the body is based on the gifts that I've been given. And the problem with that is that we then have to say, well, you know what? Who's most valuable to the church then? Well, those with the highest gifts. 
We need to value and prize those with high IQs, or we need to value and prize those with uh, large sums of money, or we need to value and prize those that the Lord has given unique gifts, the ability to whatever preach or whatever else it is. And what ends up happening is, is we kind of let sneak into this church a building a meritocracy based on ability. And I love that because here we have one of these spectacular moments flowing out of the most brilliant portrait of God's glory. And the Lord literally chooses the least competent person in the room to go do his task. And it's no small task. And I find that wonderfully comforting because sometimes in Christian service, sometimes serving in the church, sometimes when we go into new tasks, whatever they are, we feel like, man, I just have no idea what I'm doing. I have to be the least competent person God has ever called. You're in good company, friend. One of the greatest men in world history, one of the greatest men in human history, it, the exact same moment in time has that exact same feeling grossly underqualified, grossly kind of in contrast to those around him. Because why? And and there's a great object lesson in this. Why? Well, it's taken up later by Christ, but explained more fully then is that it's in our weakness that his strength is shown. You know what? You're going to serve, and if you serve in the church correctly, you will be uncomfortable at times. You're going to find yourself out of uh, your comfort zone. You're going to find yourself even out of your competency at times. That's okay. That's all right. Because your value added to this church is not based upon what abilities or gifts you have been given. It's based upon your relationship with Christ and His defining world-altering knowledge and love of you. Well, I love how this kind of immediately then flows into a challenge really toward what we think should be happening. God asks this rhetorical question, whom will I send? Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And we get this kind of comedic answer from the one guy who probably shouldn't have answered but does. Oh, I'll go. I'll do it. Again, you think about just the amazing transformation this man has had, which was just a paragraph earlier. He was like, man, I'm dead. I'm gone. And now here he is volunteering in the midst of the angels. Okay, great. That's fantastic. You go. That's wonderful. And you would think this is really the preacher's commissioning, right? You've in essence had the Lord asking a rhetorical question, who's going to be my minister? Who's going to be my messenger? Who's going to be my voice to my people? I'll be the preacher, I guess. Okay, great. And then he gets handed his job description. And much like that college student at the end of the syllabus presentation, they're like, I don't think I want this. This is the worst class I've ever taken. Or that person who's just received their job description after having their colleague laid off. This is the worst job description imaginable. Listen to what God says. Okay, verse 9, here's your job description. This is what you're going to do. You're going to go to my people, and this is what's going to happen. This is what the end fruit of your uh, ministry is going to be. You're going to say to this people, keep on hearing, but the more that you listen, the less you're going to understand. Keep on watching, 
But the more that you see, the less that you're going to perceive. Preach, now this is amazing, and in your preaching, make the heart of this people dull. Make their ears heavy and blind their eyes so that, and this is the worst part, verse 10, so that they don't see, so that they can't hear, so that they won't understand, and so that they will not be healed. You have to imagine that as the Lord is saying this, each clause that's delivered, Isaiah's like, I like this less and less every time. I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. Because what is he handed in essence? His job is to have zero fruit. Well, positive fruit, really. His job is to be a force of judgment upon the people of God. His job is to be that thing that proves that they had opportunity but were unwilling to listen. I mean, can you think about it? If we took this message up to RTS and presented this to our RTS students, and get pastoral ministry and go to teach them how to be pastors, and what's your job description as a pastor? Your job description is to go and preach so that no one ever is converted, so that no life is ever transformed except to make it worse, and so that everybody you ever talk to just gets worse judgment because of you. How many guys graduate two years after that? Your student body probably is out, right? They're They're not interested in that. Why on earth would we want to do that? Why on earth would we want to be part of that? And much like kind of our understanding of service has been reversed in the first part, it's based on obedience, based on relationship with God instead of based on gifting. Here we actually see that the job description, the success, the value added, all of that, it's really based on God's values and not our own. In fact, we could say that perhaps a little bit differently to say that God's glory doesn't match our own understanding of it probably the vast majority of the time. Because realistically, if we're going to be candid, if we were the ones designing the book of Isaiah, how would we have written this? Right? We like verse, you know, chapters 1 through 5 because it establishes it being a really big problem. It's good literature. This is how our favorite movies work. This is how our favorite dramas work. Our favorite books work is that it sets the stage for a really big problem. In fact, actually, most of ours, it sets the stage as an insurmountable problem, and that's what we like about it. But how would we have written this? We would have written this as Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the glory of God, and then he volunteers for the commissioning, and what would we have written it to be? Isaiah, your job is going to be go and preach, and revival will follow. Everywhere the Word of God goes, people will be changed, people will be transformed, people will be made new, people will come to the living and true God. At least maybe that's the way I would have written it, because I'm a preacher by trade. And that's the thing that we get most excited about. This is what we labor for. This is what we spend our lives in these pulpits for and in our studies for, preparing, studying the Scriptures, learning, absorbing them, trying to figure out how to explain them more clearly, more carefully, and more understandably. And I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not sure I could imagine a job description worse than what Isaiah is just handed. Isaiah, your job is to go serve my people so that there is no positive 
fruit at all. And in fact, actually, so that at the end of time, you serve as part of their damnation. You get under, Isaiah actually understands it. He gets it. Because the question that follows is the most respectful way you can imagine to ask and say, I'm not on board with that without talking back to God. Uh, verse 11, how long? How long? Is this going to be like a week? Well, it's not going to be a fun week, but if it's a week, I'm okay with it. Maybe two. Okay, a month. Okay, maybe two months. Please, let's stop at two months. A year? Ooh. And what's the Lord's answer? Until they're destroyed. Until they're destroyed, until the cities lie waste, until the people are run off, until there are no people in the houses, until the land is desolate, until the land is completely forsaken, until the end of the story. And I appreciate, I think, the, the kind of the emotional turmoil that Isaiah probably has to be feeling. He's just experienced one of the most profoundly transformative, visually gripping, sanctifying experiences of God's glory we see anywhere in the Bible. A man who walks in under one condition, encounters the glory of God, is atoned for, and walks out in a different condition. The man that you would expect to be the greatest servant in the Old Testament. I mean, literally, this guy's chapter 6, the first half, you would expect this guy to be the greatest servant in the Old Testament. And yet, interestingly, what he's handed as his task to be a part of the kingdom of God is to be a vehicle for destruction and wrath. And I, I love kind of the emotional dissonance that that creates if we're honest with the text. Because honestly, my heart wants a happy ending every time. I'm at the age now where I don't like reading the books that end with sad endings. I don't want that. I'm, I'm at the point in my life where it's like I want everything to have a happy ending. I want to be able to read about how the good guy wins in the end. I want to read how the, the family's resolved in the end. I, I want to read how all of the happy things happen in the end. And so I want to see, even in the text that I'm engaging, I want to see the things that have the happy ending, and that's what we want. But here we have the emotional dissonance of a Lord who is glorious and powerful and right and true and good, and a job description of tears. Can you imagine the level of discouragement this man would have faced? That for the rest of his life, we know his ministry is very long. His life is very long. Right? He's not even blessed with a short life. Like, oh yeah, you're going to go miserable for 10 years and then you're out. He labors for decade after decade after decade after decade after decade. Long life. Misery. And I love kind of, again, the emotional dissonance that we have because honestly, friends, we have too small of an understanding of what God's plan is. Because realistically, some of us are kind of in the weeds with this right now and really wrestling with it. That the Lord's called us to holiness 
and obedience, and the Lord's called us to be his child and loves us and is working with us and is taking care of us and is watching over us. And because we can't see it on our own terms, we don't embrace him. I appreciate that about the text here, is that it's highlighting the, the theme that Isaiah is going to carry with him through the rest of his ministry, is that God's ways and our ways don't line up. And by the end of the book, chapter 55, he's going to make a very, very clear and profound statement as to which one is which. God's ways and my ways do not match the vast majority of the time, and the reason being is because my ways are too low, because my mind is too low because my heart is too low, because I am not able to see with the wisdom and grandeur and omniscience and power that the Lord himself possesses. And so I struggle with believing him because I can't see the full picture. And I do love, again, how this is written. There is, at the very end, as is in all of Isaiah, Misery, 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 misery. Eh, There is a promise, though. (laughs) Because what Isaiah is kind of presenting here is that the Lord's ways are greater than our ways. The Lord's ways are higher than our ways. Sometimes his glory doesn't fully match the ways that we would expect. This is going to continue for Isaiah for the entirety of his ministry until the entire, basically, world that he knows is destroyed. Northern kingdom destroyed, southern kingdom destroyed. The the world will be removed from what it is. But there is still the stump. There is still the opportunity for the kingdom of God to grow, that the Lord is still at work, and that his God is merciful. And though even, even though everything is destroyed, everything isn't destroyed. That everything in the world that he knows is is blown apart, that the entirety of Israel is torn down, that everything you would expect to be right and good and stable and proper and true is absolutely obliterated. But God's still in control. He still has his people. He still has his remnant. He still has his work to be done. I love that, kind of tucked away at the end of Isaiah. And this is going to be with most of the chapters you're going to see. It'll be a, a message of misery compounded with one tiny little promise to remind you that the Lord is still at work. That the Lord is still at work. We get to see God's mercy. A nation that's about to be destroyed, a nation that's about to be removed even from their land. But will that be the end of the story? Will that be where it ends? Is that going to be where uh, the story kind of finishes and all of God's people just receive wrath and destruction? No, instead, we're going to see something happen much greater. In fact, actually, we're going to see another commissioning happen a little bit later, this time done again by the glory of God at a baptism, not taking place in the temple as much as taking place near the Jordan, where the very Son of God would show up stepping inside time and space and conquering even the wrath of God. You see, that's actually kind of really what's being set up here ultimately, is Isaiah's ministry is so much going to be a ministry of wrath. 
in which he presents God's truth to the people of God so that their judgment is increased. The, the Jews, their judgment is increased so that when Jesus shows up, it actually makes sense. Because what takes place throughout so much of this is a people whose hearts and minds cannot be changed and whose hearts and minds will not be changed. It's one of those great reasons why we can appreciate the power of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Christ Jesus. He shows up and our lives can be changed. All right, so uh, understanding the passage. What do we do with a passage like this? What do we do with a passage like the end of Isaiah 6, which honestly is a really hard passage. It's not emotionally happy. It's the Lord sending his servant out basically to be an object of his wrath for the entirety of his career. What do we do with a passage like this? Well, I suspect one of the greatest things that we can take from this is a bit of consolation in the midst of misery. I suspect this is probably the most important thing for us to kind of recall as we go back to think about passages like this later, is that the Lord is laying out what I think is probably one of the worst job descriptions in human history. Your ministry is going to be dreadful. And then how many days after this, after this, after this, after this, was it absolutely horrible? But the interesting thing is that the Lord knows what he's doing. And it's not an accident. It's not outside of his control. It's not outside of his knowledge. It's not outside of his understanding or his ability. He's using it to accomplish something good. And I think that's important for us to remember because we labor under the curse. And so much of our lives are going to be spent in days where we are unhappy with God's calling. Days in which we are filled with tears or anger or misery or pain. And to be reminded that much like Isaiah, though we are unhappy for the season, the Lord has not forgotten us has not made a mistake, and has not lost control on his world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your scriptures, that they tell us of salvation in Jesus, that they tell us of your hope uh, that you call us to, that they tell us of your grace. But even here, that they remind us that in the hard times and in the dark days, you have not left us. You have not forsaken us. You have not neglected us. You're just doing something that we don't understand. Forgive us for our discontent, and O oh Lord, work in our hearts, we pray for Christ's sake. Amen.